uh, turn with me to Psalm 17. Psalm 17, and the title today is Holy Under Pressure. Holy Under Pressure. And this is a very practical psalm, very helpful prayer for us. Uh, all of us feel under pressure because of various things that are going under our lives, uh, going on in our lives. We feel um, holy under pressure, you know, W-H-O-L-L-Y, holy, right? If you got, um, and uh, just the things that, the, just think about that for a minute, like the demands that we have on us, the busyness, um, the burdens, and even trying to, uh, and Lord willing, more than trying with grace given effort, uh, to live the Christian life in this broken and dark world. Uh, it's demanding and it's, it's a pressure. And so what we see today in God's word is the prayer of David as he is facing significant pressures himself. And I think for us, maybe one, some of the things that we, we would be tempted to um, face would be the pressure to cave and just follow the little g gods of this world. Right? We follow the big G God, but then the world is following the little G gods, and so we're like, well, let's just do that a little bit. Or maybe it's uh, cut some corners at work. That's a pressure that you might feel because everyone else, they're not cutting corners. They're just running straight through, doing it the wrong way, and you're like, I'll just cut a little corner, right? Or, or maybe you're willing to um, not give in to those things, but because that in itself is pressure, maybe you dabble in something that's out of God's bounds for you. And so... A thought that we want to think through today, a question that we want to ask is how can we be holy under pressure, H-O-L-Y? And we want to do that for the glory of the Lord. So King David, as, as uh, we know of his life and as we know that he wrote this psalm, as we see as the, as the superscript of Psalm 17, he was constantly under pressure during his entire life. You would think that the king of Israel and someone who was called specifically, personally by God himself would have things a little bit easier, but in fact, pretty much his whole life was on the run. Uh, if it wasn't his son trying to kill him and usurp his throne, it was uh, the king that was ahead of him, King Saul, or if it wasn't that, it was the wicked horde that was around him all the time trying to get him to denounce God, all of those things. So he is, he is feeling under the pressure constantly. He was a leader but he was also a Christian and more importantly, a believer in the Lord and his covenant toward Jesus Christ. So we can capture so much today from this man, King David, and what he faced. And we're gonna see how uh, King Jesus is really the exemplar of this, of this psalm as well. So let's look at what David prayed and how it helped him remain holy under pressure. Um, the big idea today, as we look at Psalm 17, is just this very simple thought, but you'll see it throughout the psalm as we go. It's that we remain wholly under pressure when we keep looking up at God, right? Very simply. So you're still under it, but you can be wholly during it. And how is that possible? It's because you're looking to the Lord. And that is exactly what David is practicing in order for him to remain wholly under pressure. And it's exactly what we can do as well. So as we go through the psalm today, there's only 15 verses, and I'm going to break it down into four points today. And uh, I want each of them to, uh, each of them kind of ends up being a deep human longing that we can receive 
from the Lord when we're under God's pressure. So the things today that we're gonna look at are not just things that we do to, to make it, right? It's not like, man, I, I, I wanna, I wanna uh, grin and bear it, Lord. Like, I just gotta, I gotta get through it. This is, in addition to that, it's, it's wanting to follow the Lord, honor him through it, and then also, as we see, some deep human longings will be received. And so here's the first one. It's the deep human longing of a clear conscience because of resolute abiding. The human longing of a clear conscience. And why? It's because of resolute abiding. So look at verses one through five. It says, a prayer of David. And he's praying to the Lord and he says, hear a just cause, O Lord, attend to my cry. And right out of the gate, we understand that David is confident that what he has done is right. He is not in the wrong. And so he's coming to the Lord saying, Lord, see me, see the right way that I've lived and hear me and attend to me. So we can cry out to the Lord when things are hard, when we're being falsely accused, when we're being bullied, when we're being slandered, when we're being gossiped about, when the pressures of life are hard, you, you come to the Lord. So he says, give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. From your presence, let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me and you will find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. With regard to the works of man, by the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. So five verses about David's innocence, about David's clear conscience because of resolute abiding. Now, they all weren't, but this was a holy time in David's life, right? David wasn't a perfect man. None of us are perfect people, but about this particular event, which we don't know exactly what it was, David had honored the Lord. David had remained holy under pressure, and so he's praying those things during verses one through five. He knows that he's been holy, and what's more important than that is God knows also. God knows David has been holy. God knows David had, had endured the pressure while remaining holy as well. He lists, he says, I know, Lord, I've been just. I know I'm free of deceit. I know that I'm deserving of your vindication. He knows he has uh, been right. He knows he has been searched by God and found clean in the matter at hand. He had not transgressed with his mouth. He had not been violent. He had held fast to God's paths. And as I'm thinking through that, I just pray like, Lord, may that be you. May that be me. May that be us. Amen? Like we wanna honor the Lord with our lives. We wanna honor the Lord. And when the going gets tough and pressures are mounting, it's so hard sometimes to do that because we're squeezed in such a pressurized way. But here, as David was under pressure, he remained holy. So the question is, how did he do it? And the answer is by abiding by looking to God, by having his eyes on the Lord. 
As we saw in Psalm 15, David set himself to remain resolute against wickedness. He's looking at all the wickedness in the world. He's looking at all the loud voices. He's looking at the ascendancy of violence. He's looking at the ascendancy of of anti-God rhetoric. He's looking at the ascendancy of wickedness. And he's saying, I will not participate in those things. And Lord, I'm siding with you. I choose your way. I'm going to do what is right in your eyes because, Lord, I love you. So we see his resoluteness. We see him making those decisions, but now we see the impact of those decisions in Psalm Psalm 17. What's interesting here is that we see David is living Psalm 1. Uh, We know that ultimately the only one who lived Psalm 1 perfectly is Jesus Christ. But David here is living Psalm 1, and it's our invitation as well to live in a way that walks with the Lord. David was not walking in the way of sinners, nor was he standing in the counsel of the wicked, nor was he seated in the seat of scoffers, but rather he was meditating on God's word day and night. And he was like a tree planted by streams of water, and he was bearing fruit and not withering even under pressure. It's incredible. And we know that David is not claiming sinlessness here. You could read this and look at verses one through five and be like, whoa, David's sinless. No, that's not what he's saying. Just in this matter, we know from Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But David is certain here that he's remained holy under the pressure at hand. And that's possible for us. We can have difficult things, difficult decisions. Everybody else is cutting corners. Everyone else is doing it a different way. We're tempted to do it. You're tempted to go and do that thing again or whatever, but in that moment, you abide in the Lord and you can remain holy under that pressure in that moment. And then we can multiply those moments by God's grace. There's two reasons that you can have a clear conscience. There's two ways. Number one is you're innocent. And so therefore you have a clear conscience. You're innocent, very, very simply meaning that you and God know that you've done it right in God's eyes. Even if you're being declared guilty by this world, your conscience is clear. God, I did it right. You know I did it right. Even if everyone else is saying, you did it, I did it wrong. I know, Lord, I did it right. And before you, I have a clear conscience. Every human being needs that and wants that. And then the second reason you can have a clear conscience is because you've fallen, but you've been forgiven and raised. And this one's really common too. Both of these are gonna exist for us. We sin, we fall short of the glory of God. We give in to the temptation. But the way to get a clear conscience when that happens is by confessing that sin before the Lord and letting him forgive you of that sin and then raising you to newness of life. So many of us walk around with guilt. We walk around with shame. We're thinking, man, I did this thing in the past, even though Jesus Christ has forgiven you of that thing, but you're still walk, you have a clear conscience or you're clear from the Lord, but you don't have a clear conscience yet because you're not applying that forgiveness to the Lord. And, And by God's grace, I pray you'd be free of that today. Right? No need to carry that guilt anymore. No need to carry that, that uh, shame anymore. The Lord has cleared you of those things and you can have a clear conscience through confession, through forgiveness, and through resurrection. James 5.6 is such a helpful verse in the scriptures. Uh, James 5.16, it says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be, what? That you may be healed. So think about that. I think sometimes we think of confession as an exercise. But confession isn't only that we would get something off of our chest. It's also that we may be healed. And I think sometimes we're, we're not fully healed. We're not fully through it because we're not confessing it one to another and gaining one another's help with the things that we face. 
So we pray and confess our sins to one another and pray for one another that we may be healed. And look at the second part. The prayers of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And we think about King David here, righteous before the Lord, and he's still praying. He's praying, God, help me through this. Help me through the pressure that I feel. I've been reading a book called uh, Born Again by Chuck Colson, and uh, this is a book assigned to my oldest kid, Maddie, and she's reading it, and I'm reading it, and um, it's about Chuck Colson, and he was sentenced to prison for his part in uh, Watergate during the Nixon presidency. And what's interesting about this moment in his life is that he, Chuck Colson, had recently made the most simple and impactful decision a human being can make, and he made the decision that he is a sinner and that he needs Jesus as his Savior. He placed his faith in Jesus and was saved. During all of these allegations, during all of these indictments, during the hearings, all of that, he's growing in the Lord. He's having Bible studies in D.C. with other believers, even on the other side of the aisle, and they're praying together, and they're like, we're one in Christ. It's a beautiful story. And so he goes to detention center, and then he is sent to a prison in Alabama. And while he was there, someone had equipped him with a navigator's Bible study, And he started it in prison. And the first day of that Bible study, he was in Hebrews 2. And the reading that day was about how Jesus entered into our mess and did what only Jesus can do to rescue us. And Colson realized that while in prison, he could particularly, with his government and legal background, work on prison reform, having entered it himself. He's realizing that Jesus came into all of our mess and he took all of our sin and because he's the God man and felt our brokenness and felt all of our shame and all of our sin, he was therefore capable and worthy of redeeming us from those things in a manner in which we could relate. And then he died on the cross and he rose from the dead. And so Chuck, and so Chuck Colson is thinking through this, meditating on this and recognizing that he's in prison. He'd been to prisons before he'd thought about prison reform, but now he's there and he's recognizing, I feel what this is like and I can do something about it just like Jesus did something about our sin before the Lord. What's interesting is that Chuck Colson's vindication to the onlooking world wasn't early parole which he thought he deserved because he had been, in fact, over-sentenced. That sometimes what we think will be our vindication is not what God gives as our vindication. Uh, Rather, his vindication was the new life work that God was giving him to do. And that new life work would become him starting prison fellowship. Y'all, we are made holy by God at the moment of salvation And then we get to embody that holiness before the Lord and before the watching world. And so Chuck Colson is recognizing that. He's experiencing that. Even in places like prison, even when desiring a certain type of vindication, and yet God provides another. An important theological question for us to ask and for us to consider is when was Jesus' vindication? All right, so Jesus comes, he suffers, he uh, is beaten, he's uh, disbelieved, he's betrayed, uh, all of those things, and then he dies on a cross. 
So what was Jesus's vindication? His vindication was his resurrection, right? He's alive. He rose from the dead, meaning Jesus is right. Jesus is true. Jesus is God. That's his vindication. And this is awesome. Jesus's vindication is also his work through you and me his work through us and all believers all over the world who are embodying who Jesus is, how he's freed us from sin and to live new life for Jesus Christ. That's his vindication. He's alive. He's working through us into the onlooking world. They see that God is real and that God is active. So we can be vindicated, not necessarily through being proven right, but just through remaining holy under pressure, right? Having a clear conscience because of resolute abiding and following the Lord through what we face. The second deep human longing that God gives us that we can receive when we're under pressure is this one. It's spiritual peace because of knowing God. It's spiritual peace because of knowing God. Our world says that you can gain spiritual peace through, uh, through cleansing or through a lot of meditation, but we know from the scriptures that the only way to gain spiritual peace, real eternal spiritual peace, is through knowing God. Verses six through nine help us uh, see how David is approaching this. He says, I call upon you. For you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me. Hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love. O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me. So during the ongoing accusations that were swirling around David, David rehearses five things that God provides for him for spiritual peace. And I want to show you these on a, on a chart, and this chart is going gonna, is gonna to build into the next point. The first thing that he's rehearsing, because he knows God and he's therefore reminding himself of the spiritual peace that he has, is that God hears me as I call to him. Verse 6, he is calling to God and God hears him. And as you call to God, and no matter what you're facing, God hears you, he loves you. The second thing is that God wonderfully shows his steadfast love to me. Steadfast love is a God love. Like we as human beings cannot steadfastly love in a perfect way anyone, but God does this for us. His love is unconditional. His love is steadfast. And so David is rehearsing that. The third one is that God provides Jesus for refuge. He's realizing that I do have refuge. I do have a savior for those who seek him. The fourth one is that God sees me as the apple of his eye. This is an interesting phrase. Um, think about how regularly you think of yourself as maybe a rotten apple. And God's like, no, you're the apple of my eye. Like he loves you with particular, even individualized Love And David is rehearsing that. David's thinking, I am a part of a group of those who believe, but I am also an individual that the Lord loves particularly. And then the fifth one is that God hides me in the shadow of his wings. God hides me in the shadow of his wings. He gathers his people under his protective wing. I want you all to notice something that I think is really profound about this passage, and it's what's not in this passage. Um, David is not appealing to his identity as king or like his job. 
He's, he's not saying, man, this is, this is in question, and so therefore I, I, I don't know who I am. His identity is in the Lord, not in his title. His identity is in the Lord and not in his job. His identity is in the Lord and not even how other people see him, but in how God sees him. His identity is not in his relationships, right? His relationship can change. His job status can change. His, his, change. his identity isn't in his financial status. That can change, Right? He doesn't even appeal to his calling to be the king. All he's appealing to is how God sees him. How God sees him. And so often we, we, just give, we just give a list of all these things. Lord, what about this? What about this? What about this? And instead, David's doing none of that. He's just like, God, this is who you are and this is how you see me. And it's how he's remaining holy under pressure. So a question is, do you have spiritual peace? Do you have spiritual peace? Spiritual peace um, comes from identity in God and not from anything else. Our world sets things up so that you have to achieve spiritual peace, but that's not how God provides spiritual peace at all. Spiritual peace is not something to be achieved, but it can only be received from God. It can only be received. None of these five things that David is rehearsing are anything that David earned, but rather what God freely Gives, And that's the good news of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel of Jesus. We don't earn God's love by our behavior. We don't earn God's love by being better than the next guy. Rather, we uh, are loved by God by receiving Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. So if you're saved, these five are how God sees you. And so a huge question then is, are these how you see you? Right, do you rehearse this? Do you Pray like this, like, Lord, this is how you see me, and that helps you through the pressure that you're feeling. Uh, this morning, I'm, I'm just thinking about another text in the New Testament, and, and I didn't have time to get it on a slide for you, so I'd like for you all to just turn with me quickly to 1 Corinthians 4, verses 8 through 17. 1 Corinthians, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 4, verses 8 through 11, and um, uh, I want to read this to you and just help you understand this because a fact of life is that uh, we're going to be under pressure because we're in a broken world and things here are messed up, but we are believers. And so look at these verses. I love them so much. This is Paul writing to the church in Corinth and, and Paul says, we are afflicted in every way. Just let that settle for a minute. It feels like David in Psalm 17. We are afflicted in every way. This isn't just like, man, there's a couple bad things that are going on. We're afflicted in every way, but what? Not crushed. <coughs> Why? Because God's with him. Afflicted, but not crushed. And it says perplexed, but not driven to despair. Meaning like, I don't understand what's going on, but I'm not driven to despair because God is with me. God is sovereign. Then it says persecuted, but not forsaken, right? Jesus said, in this world, you will be persecuted. I have been persecuted. Therefore, if you're following me, you will be persecuted. He's saying, you will be persecuted, but not forsaken. Forsaken by whom? God. God will not forsake you. And then he says, struck down, but not destroyed. We're eternal through Jesus. And then verse 10, we're always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, meaning like we identify with the pain and the suffering and the brokenness that Jesus also identified with. He felt it too. But look at this, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. So we feel the pressure of the world 
but we simultaneously can remain holy under that pressure, knowing that we can represent that new life to the world as well. So we simultaneously understand the, the pain and the difficulty of being here, but we also have the life of Jesus here as well. It says, for we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, meaning like there's purpose in your suffering so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh, and that's the purpose of our suffering, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in your mortal flesh, right? So that means we gotta be holy under pressure. It means we gotta walk with the Lord when we're under pressure. It means we gotta think that the Lord hasn't left us because we're under pressure. In fact, he is very, very with us. And rehearsing that this is how God sees you is great help when under pressure, The third thing that the Lord gives us, the deep human longing that he gives us is spiritual confidence despite physical fear. And I love how these two things are going against each other right here, spiritual confidence versus physical fear, like which one looms largest in your mind and your experience. And David is practicing things such that spiritual confidence would loom larger in his experience. And he's growing in that and we can as well in verses 10 through 14. So he says, he's speaking of the wicked as he says they, and just notice how physical these five verses are. He says, they close their ears to pity, With their mouths, they speak arrogantly. They have now surrounded our steps. They set their eyes to cast us to the ground. He's like a lion eager to tear as a young lion lurking in ambush. That is very physical, oppressive language. And he's feeling all of that pressure physically. He's being surrounded by wickedness and threats. Verse 13, arise, O Lord, come, confront him, subdue him, deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword, from men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. You fill their womb with treasure. They are satisfied with children and they leave their abundance to their infants. This is very interesting how he ends that section. What he's saying is, for this world and those who are in it who do not know the Lord, this world is as good as it gets. Sometimes we pray for things like children and the Lord doesn't provide, but we see the wicked being provided children and we think, Lord, I love you and I'm praying for this. They don't love you and they're not praying for that, but you do it and we think, why, Lord, why? That is so difficult. We think of so many examples of that in our lives where the wicked are doing just fine in this world, but the righteous are not. And David's recognizing right here, this world is broken and if you're thinking that this world cannot satisfy you, It's because you're made for another world, as C.S. Lewis would say. David has his mind set on the world that is to come, and he's recognizing that this world isn't as good as it gets. And when things are hard here, it's because this world is broken and ravaged by sin, and he's realizing that the Lord brings us out of that. Let's take these, these five things that we looked at about the Lord and contrast them with the wicked as we see here in, this, in these verses. So we saw that, that God hears me as I call to him, but look at this in these verses, the complete opposite. The wicked close their hearts to compassion. They do the exact opposite thing. God wonderfully shows his steadfast love to me, 
but then the wicked open their mouths with derision. They're saying the exact opposite thing. And then we see God provides Jesus for refuge, but the wicked surround the righteous with their feet. They're doing the opposite of refuge. And then we see a fourth one, God sees me as the apple of his eye, but the wicked stare down the righteous with their eyes. And then the fifth one, God hides me in the shadow of his wings and the wicked lurk in ambush for time to devour. So you see what David's doing. Six through nine, he's talking about the Lord's love for him. 10 through 14, he's talking about the wicked's hatred of him. And because he's contrasting those things, he's growing more resolute against the pressure. He's thinking under this pressure, I'm definitely not going with the wicked. Under this pressure, I'm going to the Lord. And he serves himself by focusing on that stark contrast. Literally verse for verse, there's a compare and contrast. We see how the focus on God's character can give you peace. We see how the contrast motivates us to remain resolute during the pressure. We see how the contrast reminds you that rewards from this world's ways end here. And this propels us to the last verse, which really soars, and it's this. It's worshipful visualization of the finish line. Just one verse What an amazing close to Psalm 17, just one verse. And David prays this. He says, as for me, which is emphatic, as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. David is saying that his reward is future even if He gets no reward here, even if he gets no vindication here, even if there's no spoils that he receives here that the world around him is enjoying. He's realizing this is as good as it gets for this this world, but for us, we will see the Lord. I want you to just think about that phrase, when I awake for a minute. What does that mean? It means that when he dies, when he awakes, He's seeing the Lord. David believes in the resurrection. David believes in the afterlife. The moment that we pass from here, we are with the Lord. So David's thinking whether I'm killed by the sword by all these lions that are lurking around me and trying to devour me or whether I die of natural causes in my sleep, I will see the Lord when I awake. And what an amazing consolation that is to each of us who've lost loved ones, who've lost friends, who are now with the Lord. In that very moment, they are seeing the Lord face to face. And you know what? It it doesn't just stop there. I will see the Lord face to face. It says, uh, I shall be satisfied with your likeness, meaning I will be satisfied by you. David's just finished talking about how this world is satisfied with things in the world, but he isn't. His satisfaction comes by seeing the Lord Jesus. That is completion for him. That is the end of the race for King David. He is visualizing seeing the Lord. And so the question I wanna ask is, how is it possible that we will see Jesus face to face? Just how does that work? How is that even possible? And there's two reasons why that's possible. Number one, Jesus rose from the dead and is alive. 
Amen? Like, we're gonna see him face to face. He is not in the grave. He is alive. He is risen. He is your advocate right now. He's praying for you. He cares for you. He's leading you. He wants to lead you in the way everlasting. So it's possible that you will see his face because he rose from the dead. And the second reason that it's possible that you will see his face is because he will raise you from the dead. He passes that to us we experience his resurrection as well. Y'all, this is amazing. This life isn't as good as it gets and David knows that and in the midst of all the brokenness and all the pressure he's feeling, he's visualizing, seeing God, seeing Jesus because Jesus rises and because he too will one day rise. That's his finish line. His finish line isn't this world. His finish line isn't a title. His finish line isn't the end of difficult things. His finish line is seeing Jesus and being satisfied. He knows nothing in this world can satisfy him. He knows it in this moment. We get to be in eternity with the Lord. And y'all, there's no pressure there. There's no brokenness there. There are no tears there. There's no lack of want, or there's no want there. Rather, we have the garden again. We're walking with the Lord in the cool of the day. We're enjoying the new creation with him and with one another and with all others who from every tongue and tribe and nation have placed their faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. This is what David is visualizing and there is nothing more satisfying to visualize and nothing more satisfying anywhere. There's, there's two passages in the New Testament about how we as Christians can enjoy suffering. And they're twin passages, one's in Romans 5, one is in James 1. And um, we read them and we're like, man, I don't know about enjoying suffering. But then we think about, okay, consider it joy when you endure suffering. Why? Because of what it produces. And what does it produce? It produces endurance. It produces hope. It produces faith. It produces character. Romans 5 and James 1 kind of blended together, but I want you all to think about this. It will only produce those things if you're abiding during it, right? If you're not abiding, if you're not looking to the Lord during those things, it's gonna produce resentment. It's gonna produce walking away from the Lord. It's gonna produce anger. It's gonna produce frustration. It's gonna produce anxiety. It's gonna produce depression. It's gonna produce difficulty, further difficulty. But when we abide in the Lord, we grow. We grow in hope. We grow in endurance. We grow in discipline. We grow in faith. All of these wonderful things. And that is exactly what David is going through. David was better having gone through the things that he faced. And so can all of us be. We can be better in our walks with the Lord. Not like some works-based better as if we're more impressive, but we can grow in the Lord and in Christian character through the things that we face. We remain holy under pressure when we keep looking up to God. So I wanna um, just give you a, a little bit of reflection time before we take communion. And I'm gonna lead us through just four um, prayers here, four things to consider with the Lord. So this is just you and the Lord. And uh, the first one is, what pressures are you facing and are you remaining holy? So just talk to the Lord about that right now. Like what? What pressure are you facing? And are you remaining holy? Just talk to him about it. Tell him what you're facing. And talk to him about holiness within that.
give it to the Lord. Call upon his name. Plea your cause. Next, if you're noticing that during that pressure, you've sinned and you're, you're falling short of the glory of God, confess that sin to the Lord who will forgive you and raise you and believe that he does that. Believe you that he clears your conscience. Confess your sin to the Lord. Next is meditate on how God thinks of you versus how the wicked think of you. This is that contrast between verses six through nine and 10 through 14. Just look at six through nine in your Bible and pray through that. There's five things that we see. God hears. God hears you when you call to him. He wonderfully shows steadfast love to me. He provides Jesus as refuge for me. He sees me as the apple of his eye and he's hiding me in the shadow of his wings. The polar opposite things of this world. So we grow in resolute love for abiding in the Lord and we grow in resolute discernment against the wicked ways of this world. And then last, and this is really fun, This is absolutely what the Spirit of God as he's inspiring David was wanting us to get to today. It's to visualize the day when you will awake and personally meet Jesus face to face. Just visualize that, Christian brother, Christian sister. If you are saved by grace through faith in Jesus, that is future for you. Visualize that. Make that your finish line. And all the other little finish lines, I pray that they would all be influenced by the big one, seeing Jesus face to face. Just visualize that. It's our Christian hope, and it's our Christian motivation. As I um, transition and lead us toward communion today, I want to I want to introduce it by just sharing that there is only one who remained holy under pressure, always, and it's Jesus Christ. Right? That's that's who Psalm 17 is pointing to in the most wonderful way. Jesus Christ is the only one who remained holy under pressure. And we cannot think of anything with more pressure than the cross that Jesus bore to forgive our sins and to free us from enslavement to sin and to the ways of this world. And so that we would be able to one day see God face to face without facing judgment. And so we remember today as we share communion that Jesus entered into all of our mess and that Jesus suffered just like we suffer. But Jesus suffered in a way that in which none of us could ever suffer. And he suffered on the cross to pay the penalty of our sins. So let's remember what Jesus has done. So grab the communion cup and the wafer and um, let's remember the Lord Jesus and his body that was sacrificed for us. He entered into our pain. He entered into our 
brokenness and through him we relate. He is our great brother who has been here and lived it and felt the pressure we feel. He's our great advocate. We can go to him in what we're facing, but he's done it perfectly. And therefore, when we mess up, we go right to him for forgiveness. So let's take this now, remembering his sacrifice. And then secondly, he took a cup of wine and he said, this represents the blood of a new covenant. And we think about steadfast love in this in this passage here, the blood of a new covenant for the forgiveness of sins. And if you placed your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, that new covenant has been applied to you. And by it, we, by this, we remember that, that we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus, not by our works, not by our, abil- our ability to be holy under pressure, but by Jesus's uh, having been holy under pressure. So let's take this remembering.